0: All right, as we get ready for our lesson, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the way you've taken us through the book of Exodus this year, the way that you have uh, shown us yourself in this book, the way that we have seen your character um, displayed. And then finally, Lord, as we come to the end of this book, Um, Lord, we pray now as we think about the book of Exodus as a a whole and these last few verses that your spirit would be with us once again, that your spirit would be opening our hearts, applying your truth, and your spirit would be helping us to understand um, what is going on in this passage. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, the teaching this morning is going to be a little bit different than um, it's been in the past because it's not only going to focus on these uh, last verses in Exodus, but it's also a wrap-up of our whole time in the book of Exodus. And you'll probably notice that there's not as much application or concrete application as we usually have in our lessons. Um, And I've done that intentionally because really the application, I hope, is woven throughout our lesson and um, this morning. And really the application is an application of worship, I hope that as we're thinking together about these verses and about the book of Exodus as a whole, that we will just worship as we see the way that the Lord has been at work um, in in the entire book of Exodus. And then as we come to these final verses and we see how he is at work there. Um, I'm also going to give you some extra time in small groups at the end. You've probably already been applying the book of Exodus and thinking about what you want to take away from the book. But I want you to have a little more time um, after the teaching. And if you've worked through all of the questions that have been provided, I have a few more questions that... um, uh, apply to the book as a whole for application purposes. So that's what, how the kind of the lesson is going to go this morning. I wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up about that. So as we turn to Exodus 40, I, wanna th- I want you to think about the time that, um, when maybe you have completed a big project. Uh, maybe you're like Jen and you have decorated a room um, in anticipation of the celebration of a big event Uh, Or maybe uh, you're like Monica, um, or you're like Elizabeth, and you've weaved or knitted something. Or maybe you're like Alex and Jen, and it's a flower arrangement that you've put together. So think of a time when you've completed a big project. Of course, if you're like me, and I have very few artistic impulses, Uh, My big project would be when I put together a piece of Ikea furniture. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing like Ikea to make you feel like a master craftsman, right? (laughs) When I put together a bookshelf, I, I kind of pull back in awe and I think... I built that. (laughs) So, well, but this must be, like, on a much grander scale, how the Israelites felt when they had completed the tabernacle, right? They have been... Working for so long and so hard on this huge project. And finally, it is done. Not only was it the construction of the tabernacle, but there was all that embroidery work, the, the gemstone work, the metal work that they had to do. There was so much that went into it. Um, and as we got to the end of Exodus 40, last week or close to the end. You guys can go ahead and flip over there now. I need to do that myself. Um, Well, as we got to the end, look in verse 33. And this is Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. It's finally done. The work of the tabernacle is finished. And our, and our studies finished as well, right? We have made it and we've made a long journey. You guys have persevered really well in getting to this point of really digging into Exodus every week and seeing what the Lord had, um, for us there. But, The Israelites are here at this point. The tabernacle is finished. Um, This is really the climax of the book of Exodus, this point and then the next couple of verses. But before we think about the climax, I want us to think about how the Israelites got to this point of this finished work of the tabernacle. I want us to review Exodus and the journey that we've been on together with the Israelites to bring them to this point where they are standing there uh, with the tab- tabernacle erected and waiting for the Lord's presence um, to descend. And it begins way back in Exodus 1, doesn't it? It was way back in Exodus 1 at the fall that we began our journey, and we noticed that the the Israelites had become a numerous people. Joseph brought the people down to um, Egypt, and then the people just grew and grew. And Exodus 1-7 um, tells us that they have now become a numerous people in that land. Of course, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to Abraham, that his descendants would be a numerous people. And here that's being fulfilled in the very beginning of Exodus. But of course, we also saw in the beginning of Exodus that that caused a problem for Pharaoh. The growing people of Israel uh, was not something that caused joy to Pharaoh's heart. He became angry and fearful. And in his anger and fear, he put the Israelites into slavery. Um, And when that was not working and the people were continuing to be fruitful and multiply, he even had another program of where, uh, basically genocide, right? Where he was going to just kill all the baby boys and try to wipe out um, this this nation of the Israelites. And we even noticed that as Pharaoh is targeting the baby boys and trying to to wipe out this nation, we noticed that that reminded us of a time in the life of Jesus when he was a baby, when another baby-killing king, Herod, targeted him and tried to take him out by killing a whole number of babies. But of course, in all of that, we saw God's providential care and protection of Moses as his mother puts him in that basket in the river and kind of put, gives him over to God's care and God's protection. And of course, then we saw that he's raised as an Egyptian. He's brought in to Pharaoh's household. You know, God again is caring for him, providentially showing that he can even take Moses right into the middle of Pharaoh's household and he can care for him right there in the middle of the house of the enemy of God's people. And so we saw God working that way as well. And then we saw that even though Moses is raised up as an Egyptian, he identifies with his people and he tries to go about rescuing and saving his people. Um, this resulted in his people rejecting him and him having to flee to Midian. Of course, God, it's in Midian that God calls Moses at the burning bush. He gives him signs. To assure the people that he's been called by God, and he sends Moses back into Egypt to continue the rescue of his people. And we saw as well all of these uh, different ways in which Moses being rejected by his people, having to flee, being called as a deliverer, and sent back to rescue the people. All of these things reminded us of Jesus. And we saw that in those inadequacies of the way that Moses responds to the call, um, the ways in which his failed first rescue attempt of the people, all of these things made us long for a better deliverer, made us even love Jesus more as we saw him as our perfect deliverer. And then when Moses goes back, there's this showdown between Pharaoh and the Living God, um, and at first it seems like there might be this, you know, kind of fight. Because the magicians are able to do the same plagues that um, Moses is doing, um, that God tells Moses to do. But then after the first few plagues, we realize this isn't even going to be a close fight. God is totally in control. He's the one who's going to be the victor. Because as the plagues continue, the magicians can't even begin to Pretend to do any of the plagues. And then we saw how the plagues are even targeted just on the Egyptians and the Israelites are protected from any of the effects of the later plagues. And we saw that in his design of the plagues, the living God is actually humiliating the Egyptian God. Uh, The Egyptian gods, I should say. And we saw that when the Nile is turned to blood, um, Hopi, the god of the Nile, is humiliated. And then when the sun is turned to darkness the god the sun god ra is shown to have no power so in all these ways god is showing that he is the one true supreme god and of course by this time the egyptian magicians are begging pharaoh to let the people go but god has uh, but pharaoh has hardened his heart against the people and then the plagues culminated in that final Uh, Plague, the death of every firstborn Egyptian male. And Pharaoh, who had been trying to take the lives of the baby boys of the Israelites, Pharaoh is now mourning the death of his own son. And all of Egypt is mourning with him the death of their children. In this last plague, this is what finally causes Pharaoh to allow the Israelites to leave. And when they leave, they leave with the riches of the land. Their neighbors heap gold and silver and clothing upon them. And in the plagues, God had fought for his people. He had won the victory of their freedom from slavery. And he had even arranged it so that the Israelites left Egypt as victors with the spoils of war, all those riches that they left Egypt with. And then of course, after they leave, we see that Pharaoh changes his mind and he comes out after the Israelites who are camped on the banks of the Red Sea. The Israelites are terrified, wondering what's going to happen. But God, again, has a plan. He uses Moses to part the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through on dry ground. And then they turn around to see Pharaoh and his chariots and his army coming after them. And then, of course, the sea uh, closes up. And Pharaoh and all the leaders of the army are drowned in the chaos of the sea. And God, in that act, has totally and completely delivered the people from their enemy. They are now free. They're now in the wilderness. They are no longer under the bondage of a foreign king. But the work is not yet finished, is it? Israel was out of Egypt... But now Egypt had to be taken out of Israel. That's a phrase you might have heard before. Israel's out of Egypt. They're free. But now Egypt needs to be taken out of Israel. Uh, The Israelites had lived in Egypt for so long that that blood of idolatry was running through their veins. God needed to show them a different way because left to themselves, they would have found a different wicked master to replace the one that they had left in Egypt. They didn't just need freedom from slavery. They needed true freedom, true freedom that could only be found in worshiping the living God. And God intended to do that by bringing them into a relationship with Himself in the wilderness. This desire of God to be in relationship with His people harkens back to Genesis when we think about the Garden of Eden, when God was in a perfect relationship with Adam and Eve, when He was walking and talking with them in the garden, face to face. Of course, we know they sin. They're cast out of the garden, but God doesn't give up on his people. That's when his quest to be in a relationship with his people once again begins. And that desire to be in relationship, God even promised that to the Israelites before they left Egypt. In Exodus 6, 7, he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Even at that early point before the plagues have been done, God is promising that he's going to be in relationship with the Israelites. And then as they are traveling towards Sinai, he begins that relationship with them, and he begins it by personally caring for them, giving them the daily bread of manna. This is when he institutes the Sabbath so that the people who had known no rest in Egypt are now able to know rest under this good king, the living God. And he does this despite their grumbling and complaining, doesn't it? He perseveres with them. Well, finally, they arrive at Mount Sinai. They're in the same location in which God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And God's appearance in the burning bush is a theophany. Maybe you've heard that word. Maybe you haven't. But when God appears on earth... He appears in the form of a theophany. It's always accompanied by fire. It's often accompanied by smoke, by lightning, by thunder, even sometimes by trumpet blasts. So when God's going to appear to his people, he appears to them as a theophany. And at Mount Sinai, he gives the people commandments, just as he gave Adam and Eve commands in the Garden of Eden. These commandments are more detailed, but they're to show the people how to worship their God, how to live in community with one another. They are meant to be a blessing for the people and to bring the people into relationship with the living God. Well, God also knew the ways that they had been influenced by their time in Egypt. So he gives the people a special warning in Exodus 20:23 20, when he says, do not make gods of silver to rival me. Do not make gods of gold for yourselves. God knew the ways that they were going to be tempted to sin. But then after giving the people the 10 commandments at Mount Sinai, we come to one of the high points in the book of Exodus, don't we? God's given the people the commandments, and now he descends on Mount Sinai in another theophany. There's smoke, there's lightning, there's fire, there's thunder, and God is present on the mountain. It's like that little theophany in the burning bush has now been blown up. God isn't just peering to an individual, but he is personally appearing to this whole group of people, the whole nation of the Israelites. And in response, the people worship God by saying, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. This is followed by a covenant ceremony in which the people are consecrated by blood. And then the elders go up to eat and drink in the presence of God. God then gives Moses those detailed instructions about the tabernacle that we spent so many weeks looking at. But he tells Moses, first and foremost, the purpose of the tabernacle. And he does this in Exodus 25, 8, when he says that Moses is to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. God does not want to be far away from his people. He wants to live close by them. And the tabernacle is going to allow him to do just that. And, of course, as we talked about the tabernacle, we talked about how the instructions for the tabernacle reminded us of Eden. Everything from the lampstand that was like a tree to the gold and the onyx, which were the products of Eden, to the eastward orientation and the presence of the cherubim. All of those things were reminders of Eden. God is letting the people know once again he wants to be with them just like he was with Adam and Eve in Eden. And in fact, when the tabernacle is constructed, it's kind of like a mini little Eden. But we also know that this was a high point, but also a low point at Mount Sinai because when Moses is off meeting with God, we had the incident of the golden calf where the people do exactly what God warned them not to do and they fashion out a God out of gold to worship. It's like the fall of Genesis 3 all over again. God has given the people... Commands to bless them, and they have responded by rejecting him. And of course, the people deserve judgment. And what did we see when we looked at the golden calf? But God's mercy and grace. We saw that he gave them new stone tablets, um, he even promises that when they go into the promised land, he's going to fight the battles on their behalf. And then he, through Moses's intercession, shows the people incredible mercy and grace. He doesn't give up on them, but he is going to be their God, and they are going to be his people. Well, then, last week we got to the final building of the tabernacle. Finally, it's being built. It was the people uh, obeyed perfectly. As Whitney told us, it's the highlight of their obedience. They construct it exactly as God has told them that it is to be constructed. And now the work is finished. And we come to the last words of Exodus And let me read them now. Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. "'Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys.'" Well, this is the climax of the book of Exodus. And reading it really doesn't do it justice, does it? And even a movie set or a movie wouldn't do it justice. You've got to kind of imagine in your mind this incredible, incredible, Angel choir, the best angel choir we've ever heard singing the Alleluia chorus, right? As the cloud is coming down on the temple, the glory cloud descending. The people are again experience a theophany. God's presence is coming down onto the tabernacle it's a cloud by day and it's fire by night it's like the burning bush but on a large scale because there's this fire on the tabernacle at night but it's not burning like the bush didn't burn God's presence is right there on the tabernacle. And not only that, but God's presence before in the Theophany was way up on that Mount Sinai, right? But when he fills the tabernacle, when his glory fills the tabernacle, it's like his presence goes from being way up high on Mount Sinai down to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is in the midst of the camp. So now God's presence and his glory is right in the midst of the people. God is in the camp close to his people. And when they see his glory descend on the tabernacle, the work is finished. They can now rest in their relationship with the living God. I don't know if you notice it or not. But in these verses, it talks about how God was a guiding presence for them and how his presence went with them throughout all their journeys. That's repeated twice in our passage. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up, the people of Israel would set out. So his presence is with them. It's a presence that allows them to rest because they can know that he is perfectly going to be leading and guiding them. Their Sabbath rest began when God's presence descended on the tabernacle. And then they lived happily ever after. <laughs> right? No. I mean, for the, for the people at this point in time, this was the climax. This was the high point for them. But for those of us who know the bigger story, we know that the work was finished, but the work was not complete. Um, Think back to that piece of Ikea furniture that you've probably constructed at some point in your life. Have you ever gotten to the point where the furniture or the bookcase or whatever is basically uh, finished? And then you look down and you realize, oh, something's wrong. It's finished, but it's not complete. I somehow have, you know attach these pieces in the wrong place. And then you realize, oh, that picture that's their directions is actually upside down. And I have, I have been doing this all wrong. Well, the, the tabernacle when God's glory comes down is finished, but the work is not complete. And we have a hint of that in verses 34 to 35. Let me read that for us again. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Did you all wonder about that? Like, why was Moses not able to go inside the tabernacle when God's presence was there? I mean, Moses is used to going up the mountain when God's presence is on Mount Sinai, and he's used to meeting with God there, why is he not able to go inside? And it kind of seems from as we read the passage, as if like Moses thought it was natural that he would be able to go inside, and he kind of tries to go inside, and it's like, oh, wait, I can't Come inside. It's like the doors of the tabernacle are locked and Moses can't get inside. Well, I think these verses are hinting to us that the tabernacle is not sufficient for us. The tabernacle is not sufficient for the people to be in full relationship with the Lord more is needed. And we have a hint of that even in the building of the tabernacle, don't we? When we have the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies. And we know that the mercy seat is where the sacrifice of atonement, the blood is going to be sprinkled on the mercy seat once a year to take care of the sins of the people. So this Moses not being going, going, able to go inside the tabernacle is that hint that the sin of the people is still a barrier to their relationship With the Lord. And of course, the the rest of the Old Testament is a catalog of more and more of the Israelites' sin, isn't it? I mean, God is constantly pursuing them in the form of prophets, um, even sending them into exile in his pursuit of them, but they continue to persist in their sin. But then we also have the New Testament, don't we? And we have the, um, the words that tell us about the birth of Jesus. And when John is describing Jesus to us, he said, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, right? The work of the tabernacle was finished in Exodus, but it wasn't complete. It was meant to be a temporary provision and a picture. And when Jesus arrived, the people were supposed to recognize that once again, the glory of God had come down to be amongst his people, and they ha- he had come down in Jesus. And John recognizes this fact which is why he said that Jesus tabernacled amongst us. He recognizes that Jesus is the living tabernacle who lived against us. And John also knew that Jesus was going to completely take care of our sin. And he knows that because when he sees Jesus, he calls out Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew that in Jesus, the true Passover Lamb had arrived. The Jesus, our Passover Lamb, allowed himself to be hung on the cross in our place to pay for our sin with his blood and with his last breath. What does he say? It is finished. Now the work of the tabernacle is finally complete. We are able to fully enter into God's presence as we trust in Christ's death for the forgiveness of our sins. And not only are we able to enter into God's presence, but God's presence enters into us. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, when he says that we are temples of the living God. When the Holy Spirit comes into us, God's presence has actually come into us. And even more than that, when we gather as a church body to worship the Lord, we are the temple of the God. So we are individually the temple of God, and then as we gather together as the church body, we are also the temple of God. Jesus' death and resurrection completed the work that was finished here at the end of Exodus. But we don't fully experience that completed work, do we? We'll fully experience that completed work in heaven. So as we close our time together, I just want to read for us Revelation 21. And as I read Revelation 21, I want you to to think about how Revelation 21 has echoes of the tabernacle and of God's glory in the tabernacle. I also want you to listen and to think about Revelation 21 as our concrete future. Revelation 21 is as much our future as our plans for after we're done with Bible study this afternoon. So go ahead and turn to Revelation 21 if you have a Bible. And listen as I read it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth... And God himself will be with them as their God. You hear the echoes of Exodus right there when God is planning to be with his people. And this is where he truly will be with those of us who are his people. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit, a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names but the Holy of Holies we studied about. And so now we don't have a Holy of Holies that a priest can only go into once a year, but the entire city is the Holy of Holies. The entire city is where the presence of glory of God is going to be. And that is where we are going to be one day in the presence and the glory of God. So for those of us whose name is written In the Lamb's Book of Life, this is our future. This is when we're going to enjoy that face-to-face relationship with God and experience complete rest. The work of the tabernacle was finished in Exodus 40. It was completed at the cross. And we are going to experience its full completion when the Lord takes us to heaven or when he comes again. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for what we have seen of you in Exodus. What a glorious vision we have had of you and the way that you have gathered a people for yourself to worship you. And I thank you so much that the work of Exodus was not done there, but it was completed at the cross And I thank you that one day we will experience that when we are with you face to face in heaven. Lord, help us as we go about our weeks, our days, help us to remember that this is our future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.